Well, hi, friends, and welcome to another episode of Ask Science Mike. This is a weekly podcast where we believe that every question deserves a sincere and non-judgmental response. I'm your host, Mike McCarg, of this long-running program, and it's good to talk with everyone today. Um, and it's going to be another episode where I just talk about one question because I'm getting this question so much. And the question I'd like to talk with you all today about is, um, how do we do this? And by this, I mean survive COVID-19 together. When I look at the message from people on social media, the questions you're sending in using AskScienceMike.com, the questions that I'm getting from my patrons and my patron inbox on Patreon, and then the cards and letters that you are sending me to my P.O. box. The theme across all of those messages for the last several weeks has been, I just don't know if I can keep doing this. How do I keep doing this? And so I thought it would be helpful to make today's episode about that and only that. Because it's scary out there, right? We have an ever-growing number of cases in the United States, in countries that have done a better job, which is, frankly, almost all of them, of controlling the spread of COVID-19. There are still regular outbreaks. Things start to reopen, then they close back down. People will think they've got a handle on the disease, and then it shows up somewhere else. We're seeing that in Hong Kong. We're seeing that in Europe. We're seeing that all over. Every time a given culture thinks they've really got a handle on COVID-19, they don't. And the United States isn't even trying to get a handle on COVID-19. We're having some kind of strange culture war. And, well, let's talk about that for a moment. I saw this amazing picture. It was a picture of a woman wearing a mask and a sign, a sign on her jacket. And that sign said, wear a mask or go to jail. And as I saw that picture, I thought, how great a symbol of our moment in history that was. And it was only moments later I realized I was looking at a picture from 1918, 102 years ago. There's this picture of a woman in California wearing a mask and a sign that says, wear a mask or go to jail. And I looked up the origins of that picture. And I found uh, that it was not fake or photoshopped. It's a real picture. It's uh, a very evocative image of seven people standing on a platform next to a train tracks. I assume it's a train platform. They're all wearing masks. They're all wearing actually pretty cool outfits. <laughs> 1918 had it going on. <laughs> but, uh, you know, uh, as I looked into the history of that photograph, I learned that in the 1918 pandemic, there was an incredible debate about wearing masks in 1918 to the point... Um, when Spanish flu killed more than 50 million people, states started to quarantine citizens, and then others 
started making face masks mandatory. Now, what did that tell me? In 1918 in the U.S., the states didn't agree on how to control or contain the 1918 flu pandemic. They had different strategies. And when we look at the death rates over time in different cities and states across America, what do we see? The same different timelines and same different mortality rates then that there is now. Fascinating. Anyway. In states that passed a mask ordinance requiring it with fines and up to 10 days imprisonment for noncompliance, it was an incredible pushback even in California. And despite public uh, advertising and campaigns, uh, there actually was formed, and I'm not kidding, an anti-mask league, an organized group designed to push back on mask ordinances. I am not talking about 2020. I am talking about 1918. And in response to the pressure of the Anti-Mask League, mask ordinances were loosened and death rates returned. There was a third wave of the 1918 flu pandemic in California, which brought back mandatory masking in the state that I currently live in. In 1918. Now, I have broadly and deeply studied the 1918 flu pandemic and never heard this story. But we have to be careful. We don't want to over-rely uh, on the 1918 pandemic to tell us what could happen now. Why? Because influenza and coronaviruses are very different. Their mutation rates are different. The way they replicate is different, which is why their mu- rates of mutation are different. But what was interesting to me about that story is the viruses behind these pandemics might be very different. But human beings and their motivations haven't changed that much in a hundred years. Not at all. And this has its own impact on our current situation. Because we not only face a deadly virus... And as you remember from my last episode, it is a deadly virus, and it's also a harmful virus. People who don't die can face serious impairments from COVID-19. But we also struggle with humanity. We struggle with people. We struggle in the different ways that we process information and conflicts in our value systems. My native home state of Florida has reopened Disney World, all while case rates have reached records there. There are more people being diagnosed a day in Florida with SARS-CoV-2 than there were at the peak of the pandemic in New York in its first wave, which seems like very strange decisions to me. And so we grieve our differences, we grieve our inability to organize into meaningful collective action, and what? We also struggle. We struggle from conflict with friends and family and other members of our society. And for people who are following the rules, doing the right thing, staying home as much as possible under safer at home orders, this has been a lot of isolation for a very long time. 
I've said on this program a couple of times now, the nutritionist that treats my daughter for anorexia told my family that it was our job to do our very best C-plus work during the pandemic. That phrase has stuck with me. I repeat it myself ten times a day. Because the expectations we usually place on ourselves right now simply cannot be allowed to be there. That's true for people who are essential workers. That's true for people who are protesting and organizing against police brutality and white supremacy in this country. And that's true for those of us who are doing our best to contribute to all of those things by staying home. We have to do our very best C-plus work. Now is not the time to let our inner overachievers out. And as always, friends, I am speaking with you from a place of experience. I have had my own struggles and stumbles in the face of this pandemic and the reality that we find ourselves in right now. I've been very frustrated with my marketing background and my understanding of science that I haven't been able to more meaningfully drive us towards collective action or come up with ways of public messaging or organizing that could destigmatize or depolarize the notion of wearing masks. And I've personalized that failure. I've thought, well, with the audience I have, I should be able to start some kind of a campaign that makes a meaningful difference. And don't hear me wrong, I know I've made a difference. But I look at those deaths every day, and I think, what could I have done that I did not do? And so I start to internalize this notion that I can't help other people. And then I'm in, a, in the events business. That's how I make my living, is selling tickets to live events. Live events don't exist anymore. So my business has really struggled to the point that it's been hard for us to pay rent. That's getting better. I'll talk about that in a moment. It doesn't fit this story. But when I can't make a living, then I feel like I can't provide for my family. So then I feel like, well, I can't help my family. So now I can't help others and I can't help my family, which gets me very depressed. And when I get very depressed and I start feeling defeated, the rituals I use to create grounding in my life, both in a pandemic and not, start to fall apart. And then I start thinking, I can't help myself. And when I believe all those things, I can't, can't help others, I can't help my family, I can't help myself, then I lose all hope. And I got into a period for weeks where I was in that state of hopelessness. Uh, I stayed off social media, so you wouldn't have gotten a hint of it there. But if you were listening to the podcast, I was still putting the podcast out. Um, I'm sure you could hear a sadness in my voice. I'm not good at hiding my feelings from people. And I'm talking about weeks and weeks and weeks. Basically since after the book came out in April. And I went on tour and there was some adrenaline there. Virtual tour. But about halfway through that, I just felt the wheels come off, y'all. Um, 
And I've just been so down. I've been so down. And all the advice I would offer you on how to get out of that difficult place wasn't working. I couldn't find the motivation to do the things that I knew would help me. Now, things are getting better again. How are things getting better again for me, you might ask. I've returned to some very old habits or some old work. I'm doing some corporate communications work. I'm helping a company I care about um, make a really cool product and launch it. And the energy boost I got from having a client and knowing I would be able to pay my rent and buy groceries, y'all, I just can't describe it. I cannot describe how big a difference it made because I thought, well, at least I can help my family. And if I can help my family, I have to help myself because I have to get out of this rut I'm in so I do a good job for this client of mine. And then with that energy, things kind of coming back, um, I picked up another couple of clients. And so suddenly, you know, it's a different situation for me. I'm no longer thinking each Ask Science Mike is going to be the last episode or anything dark and difficult like that. Here's why I tell you that. It's not because your path to your best C-plus work will be the same as mine. It will not. It means I tried a lot of things that experts recommend, and they didn't work for me. But one of them did. And so I'd like to tell you about some of the things that mental health experts recommend to us in difficult times like this. In fact, advice from experts, you know, for this exact moment in history. And the one I tried last, the one I least wanted to do, is the one that helped. And that is reach out for support. I stopped talking to people. I stopped not only being on social media, I stopped texting people and emailing people. I cut myself off from everyone because when I feel sad... I feel like I'm a burden on everyone else. And I don't want to be a burden on people because I'm really codependent and I care what people think about me. And I'm afraid if I'm a burden, they won't want to be around me anymore. And I, I mean, this is a feeling in my heart, not a thought in my mind. In my mind, I know I'm a popular person with many friends and great affection from an audience. But you try convincing your inner child that sometime, you know? It's different. And so I reached out for support. I started telling people how sad I was, mainly because I felt guilty about not talking to people who reached out to me that I cared about. I would finally say, I'm sorry. I haven't been calling back or texting back. I am very depressed. And then a strange thing would happen. People would say, I'm sorry you're feeling depressed and I care about you. And that was nice. And then some people would realize 
well, what are you depressed about? And I would kind of run through the things I was depressed about. I was experiencing situational depression, not clinical depression, meaning my sense of malaise and hopelessness was tied to a specific circumstance. And two of my dear friends reached out and said, you know, we got a project we're working on. We'd love to work with you on it. And I'm pausing here because my eyes are filled with tears. Because I got so excited. And as I share some tips from different mental health experts right now on what we can do in times like these. I tell you my story so you'll know. Sometimes the one that seems the hardest is the one you need to do to start getting some grounding and some perspective back in your life. The one that scares you the most might be the one that's the most needed. And because I'm me and because I care about mental health, I'm not going to tell you any uh, anything that's exploitive here. I'm not going to tell you anything that's dangerous. I'm going to tell you things that have been vetted by mental health experts that I trust. So here's a few ways that we can stay grounded and centered or find ground and find center during a pandemic and social distancing. Number one is move your body. Move your body. I hate that one. (laughs) I absolutely hate exercise. That's not true. I greatly enjoy certain forms of exercise once I am doing them, but I hate starting them. I hate to get started in an exercise routine. But it is completely undeniable that moving our bodies has an impact on our mental health. Um, And I want to be clear, moving your body can mean something different for different people. We all have different circumstances with our body. We have different body shapes. We have a different number of limbs or hands or feet. Uh, We have different senses. So I'm I'm not telling you how you move your body. I'm telling you in a way that's appropriate for your body, Move that thing, okay? Um, Yeah, however that looks like. You know, for my friends who have total mobility uh, limitation, um, use the mechanisms that you have from your support group to find a change of space and a change of scenery. However you can move your body, move your body. For me to move my body, sometimes I need help. Um, My daughter invites me to go for a walk every day, and I'm trying to say yes more than I say no, because I feel so much better once I'm out the door. But somehow, it just seems like putting on my shoes is impossible. Moving our body is proven to have a positive impact on our mental health. And you say, oh my gosh, but move my body. There's a pandemic. I'm so afraid. If I go outside, I'll get coronavirus. 
And remember, we're bad intuitive assessors of risk in germ theory. Going outside, distance from other people, is not a very high-risk situation. We have seen already, it's getting pretty definitive in our research, people marching with masks on in protest did not bring back the virus uh, in, curve in a significant way. People gathering in much smaller numbers indoors at bars and restaurants and gyms and clubs is what started to move the needle again, started to make that curve steep, right? Going outdoors is great for your body, especially if you keep six feet away from people and everybody wears a mask. Okay, so you can move your body outdoors, but you can also move your body indoors. It doesn't take that much room. There's all sorts of body movement exercises. YouTube is a, a great resource that costs nothing. You'll find experts on moving your body there, okay? Moving your body. Here's another one. Take breaks from the news. We need to be informed. That's important. But we can get, like, hyper-focused and obsessed with news media. Even right now, we don't need to know minute-by-minute updates of what's happening in the news media. On a heavy news day, I look at the news twice, in the morning and in the late afternoon. Most days, I look at the news once, and sometimes... I take days off from news media if I need it for my mental health. So taking break from news media will help. Taking the time to unwind. Scheduling leisure activity. Now, I want to be clear. So here's what happens. We're at home all the time, many of us. And the lines between leisure and work and exercise and eating, all these things are getting really blurry. <laughs> really blurry. Is it day? Is it night? What day is it? What meal is this? All of these things are lost. So as we move our bodies and as we take breaks from news media as appropriate to de-escalate our nervous systems, then we want to start instilling some sense of normalcy and routine again. Um, as I got more and more depressed, my sleep got more and more erratic. And before I reached out for help and support to find the energy to do that, I started putting myself on a regular sleep schedule again. Going to bed about the same time, getting up about the same time. And let's be honest, for a week and a half, it took all my energy just to go to bed and get up on a predictable schedule. But over time, that started to help my body. When I started to get eight and a half hours of sleep again every night, I started going to bed at a reasonable time. I was getting up at a reasonable time. That sense of structure started to create a flow in my life. Where I started getting more and more structure back again. I started setting aside time on my calendar that was time to work. And time on my calendar that was time to eat. And time on my calendar that was time to move my body. And time on my calendar that was time to unwind. I have found a great rhythm for me. Is I work on a project for a few hours. And then for 30 minutes I don't. I put some leisure time there. Then I work again. Then I do some leisure time. Then I work a third time. And then leisure time again. You see what I mean? 
But by having that more regimented relationship between task flow and leisure flow, it lets me actually focus on one as opposed to being like, wait, am I writing right now or am I YouTubing? Is this YouTube research? What is happening? Wait a minute, what day is it? So creating that routine lets us create the time to unwind. Do you see what I mean? To take the time for self-care, that means we have to have time that's like not self-care. And our, our, we tend to thrive with that little bit uh, more structure. So that's really important. And then connecting with other people is essential. Now, physical distancing is still important. We can get together virtually. But I'm here to tell you, it is also possible to be reasonably safe and get together physically. Here's what I've done. I have one of the smallest backyards in the world. I live in California. So uh, my backyard is like a large porch. (laughs) It's not a porch, but if you imagine the size of a porch, like I have been to homes where the porch is bigger than my yard. Do you see what I mean? But I will take a chair or chairs and I'll arrange them in a way that feels kind of organic and say, it's my family and another family are getting together. I'll arrange the chairs so the two families will all sit together and there'll be a natural separation of six to 10 feet between those two seating arrangements. But I try to set up in a way that like, you know, we're all, it's like two half circles and it feels kind of natural to our brains because you have people close to you, it's your own family and you're seeing other people. It starts to normalize. Uh, We put masks on and when people come over, they come over, they come to our side gate, they come to the backyard, they don't come through the house. We talk um, and then we set up like a pathing, right? So people uh, have bladders, bladders get full. We understand that. We're not going to make people pee in our yard. So people come inside. We have taken all the soft textured things out of the bathroom. We set up paper towels by the sink. We do a deep disinfect when people, before people arrive and a deep disinfect once they leave so that there's access to facilities. In that situation, if you keep it to two family units, your risks are quite low. We had, we had friends over for dinner the other night, dear friends of ours. And, you know, eating and drinking are higher risk activities because of droplet production. So I took two tables and I put like a no man's land or no person's land, I suppose, in between those tables of about seven and a half feet. It was outdoors again, where risks are much lower. And ahead of time, we were having, um, I'd say hamburgers, but they were, they were uh, uh, vegetarian, vegan hamburgers. There's no meat in them. They're delicious. But um, so before we got, they got there. We washed our hands deeply. We put on our face masks and we pre- prepared like a condiment and buns and all these things tray for each table. Got those staged. Cover the with saran wrap. Right. So we we followed the CDC guidelines for food preparation in our home. And so then when everybody got there, we don't have to have like a shared buffet. Each table has their own serving. Then I grilled the burgers, took those right off the grill. I'm wearing my mask. 
I'm wearing gloves, and I dish the burgers out to each table separately. So we have hot hamburgers. I'm pretty sure a grill kills COVID-19 anyway. <laughs> but um, And we had some sense of normalcy. We all ate together, socially distanced. So I'm not saying we can't get together. We should connect with people. So when we have people in our life, we know that they are taking reasonable precautions against the disease, and we are as well. Um, I encourage those, those situations. What I'm not talking about is a lot of family units getting together indoors or even outdoors. We know, I'm sorry, friends, house parties are a major part of the spread of COVID-19 right now. They really are. So we gotta, we really got to buckle down here because the fact that we're not buckling down is the reason we're still having so much spread, is the reason we're still isolated, is the reason we're having a mental health crisis. And remember, stress really affects us. Anxiety, it can change our sleep and eat patterns, cause fatigue, cause chest pains, headaches. It can intensify chronic health conditions, affect our emotional stability. So we really do, as we find the energy within ourselves, do these things. And if you can't find the energy to do them, just try one at a time. Work on your sleep. Just work on your sleep. Work on connecting with one person this week. Work on moving your body. Work on eating one nutritious food item. Try something new. Anything that is curious. That could be watching something you haven't seen yet on Netflix at a very low threshold or higher. Playing an instrument. Learning an instrument. Something like that. This is hard. So the last thing I'd say to you today is, if this feels difficult and overwhelming, it's because life is difficult and overwhelming right now. There is nothing wrong with you if you feel sad. In fact, there's nothing wrong with you if you feel depressed. That is a very, very natural normative, adaptive response to the situation we find ourselves in now. My friends who are mental health professionals tell me they've never struggled so much in their life and work as they are struggling right now. Those are the kinds of experts who come up with the kinds of activities I just shared with you just now, and they are struggling too because this is incredibly difficult. We are social primates who are in this period of isolation. So can I tell you something, my friends? You might be like me. You might feel helpless and hopeless. And as you all started to realize I was feeling helpless and hopeless, you sent me so many messages of hope and encouragement saying, Mike, we need you. Take all the time you need, but we need you. And if you're listening to me right now, can I just tell you that's true of me to you? 
I need you. And I believe it's also true for the other people who listen to this program. We all need you. Because right now, our circumstances have forced us into this isolation. Right now, we all live on our own little microscopic planets alone. But one day, we will all come back together. And we will have to put things back together. And so, like my friend Gloria says, I need you to do your best C-plus work today and tomorrow and all of this week and all of next week. I need you to be more patient and gracious and kind with yourself than you have ever been. because we're going to have to put society back together after this pandemic. And we're going to have to fix some things that were problems with our society before the pandemic even began. And we will have to do those things together. And that means, dear friend, we need you.